0: This is Space Time series 21 episode 23 for broadcast on the 23rd of March 2018. Coming up on Space Time, Stephen Hawking dead aged 76, the Dawn spacecraft spies changes in Ceres surface and the Starman and the Roadster. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to Space Time
2: with Stuart Gary.
0: March the 14th, 2018, is celebrated worldwide by scientists and nerds alike, as it marks the 139th birthday of the great Professor Albert Einstein. And it may be irrational, but using the American dating system of month before day, 3.14 is also celebrated as Pi Day, pi being the ratio of a circle circumference to its diameter. But now March 14 will also be remembered for the passing of physicist Stephen Hawking. Hawking, considered by many as one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists since the great Dr. Einstein, died peacefully at his home in Cambridge. He was 76. Hawking was diagnosed with motor neuron disease back in 1963 while still at university, and at the time was given a prognosis of just two years to live. As the disease progressed, Hawking became confined to a wheelchair, spending most of his life there. He was married twice, producing three kids. As the disease continued advancing, Hawking began using a voice synthesizer to communicate. During his career, Hawking strived to unite the two foundations of physics and cosmology. Einstein's general theory of relativity, which eloquently describes the universe on cosmic scales, and quantum mechanics, whose strange, often counterintuitive properties accurately describe the universe at the subatomic level. Hawking saw the universe in four-dimensional imaginary time. Imaginary time simply substitutes the temporal dimension with a fourth spatial dimension. Hawking is probably best known in science for his research into the likely virtual quantum matter-antimatter particle pairs popping into and out of existence at the event horizon of a black hole. Hawking showed that these virtual quantum particles would cause black holes to slowly evaporate over timescales of trillions of trillions of years. In his final years, Hawking contributed to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Not only did he support the Breakthrough Listen Project, which is using time on the Parkes radio telescope and the Arecibo Observatory to listen out for signatures of advanced life beyond Earth, but he also issued humanity with a stern warning that maybe it's unwise to let the rest of the universe know we're here. After all, our own history of what happens when more advanced civilizations make contact with comparatively less advanced ones has never ended well for the less advanced civilization. Hawking worked right up until the end. His final scientific paper had its last revision approved just ten days before his passing. The research, titled A Smooth Exit from Internal Inflation, hypothesizes about the mathematical tests needed to confirm or refute observations showing possible signs of parallel universes in the cosmic microwave background radiation. The study's co-author Thomas Hertog says the paper's goal was to transform the idea of a multiverse into a testable scientific framework. The paper is available on the pre-press physics website, archive.org. But it was Hawking's efforts to demystify cosmology, making it more accessible to the general public, for which he'll be most remembered. I'm joined now by Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. To look at Hawking's legacy.
3: Yeah, unexpected news about Stephen Hawking, a remarkable man, and I think, I mean, remarkable on several levels. One, of course, was the amazing contribution he's made to theoretical physics and cosmology throughout his life, and having the second level to him, of course, is doing that in the condition that he's been for pretty much all his adult life is quite remarkable. He said that it gave him some advantages being Sort of cocooned as he was because he was able to think differently and think, think in a different way he said he really couldn't think in words we had to think in pictures and he was able to picture the universe in a way that few other people sort of have uh, and another level of course is the way he pop- popularized science and bring it to more and more people but just on a, on a human level remarkable that he lasted so long with a condition that takes. well he was given just what two early.
0: years to live when he was diagnosed
3: so th- thank goodness he was around for as long as he was because he uh, seemed to be a remarkable man, a, a great wit as well. It just goes to show what you can do, doesn't it?
0: The most amazing thing about it all was his ability to combine quantum mechanics with relativity theory. So the, the theory of the universe on a cosmic level through Albert Einstein and the theory of the universe on a quantum level, on a subatomic level. And he was able to do that very successfully and explain it to people in an easy to understand manner. And I guess the the interesting point there is is what we saw, the Stephen Hawking we saw on TV, we saw on Big Bang Theory, we saw on Star Trek, Next Generation, and on so many other TV shows and sitcoms and things like that, that was the dude. He was really a a very effervescent sort of person, but he was trapped in this body with having a conversation with him. It's not like it is on TV where there's a quick repartee between the two. It can take him half an hour to put his sentences together. There was actually a little device next to his cheek, which he would use to move through the alphabet on his computer, screen to type in each letter individually. He kept it at a very fast pace. He often made mistakes and had to re-go and do the words he was doing again before the synthetic voice would speak. It was very frustrating for him because his mind was very active and working very quickly. I think what he did the most was hawking radiation, his ability to explain how these little quantized bits of matter and antimatter energy and particles that are popping into and out of existence all the time, how they could result in the evaporation of a black hole. I thought that was really quite brilliant. And when you think about it, it's exactly what you'd expect to happen. I mean, it's how the universe began by one of these uh, well two of these quantum particles popping into existence and uh, not popping out of existence. Well, maybe the antimatter particle did, but the positive matter particle certainly didn't.
3: I think that um, what is uh, not appreciated by people in, in just the general public is the sort of this very strong connection between the tiny world of, of particles and the big world of the cosmos and they might seem to be worlds apart no pun intended but they are completely connected and you can't understand one without understanding the other and, and each helps the other e- each field of science helps the other hmm. because when you do go, when you do sort of look back in time through the age of the universe and get to the Big Bang as you say you get into the realm of physics where, where particles take over uh,
0: well these were particles at the start weren't they These, well they still are now but this was just subatomic quantum physics at the very start of the big bang the cosmic microwave background radiation the leftover afterglow of that big bang and those differences in temperature are caused by those virtual quantum particles popping into and out of existence
3: yeah it's, it's where you have extreme environments where you you really then do see the connection between the the tiny world and the larger cosmological world as in as in the Big Bang or black holes, those kinds of things, things that have got a lot of gravity or a lot of energy or are moving very fast. That's where you do get that, what what it seems to be a crossover. It's not a crossover. They are connected. We just haven't connected them yet in theory. And That's what he and other people are working towards. He he was working towards and other people still are. And Einstein tried to do that all throughout his life. And it's something that still eludes science to try and connect the theory of the tiny world, the the particle world, and our theory seems to work really well there, and the theories of the, the big grand scale of the universe, the cosmological stuff, which seems to work really well but they don't connect yet and people have been trying to figure out a way to connect the two and they're sort of getting there but still a way to go we need another brain of the caliber of an Einstein or um, Hawking to try and put those two together.
0: I think Dirac came close, but uh, he didn't quite get there either with his equations. I think the Hawking story I like the most is when I saw the movie with Eddie Redmayne starring as Stephen Hawking, this is the movie of his life, and he was giving his dissertation before the committee for his doctorate, and I'm listening to it, and there was a little part there he was talking about the evolution of galaxies, and it was wrong. And I thought, oh, the writers have stuffed up here, they've made a huge mistake. And no, when Hawking's dissertation became available last year, I, I read through it and Hawking actually said those things. So Hawking may have got his doctorate, but he wasn't perfect. He did make mistakes.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, no one is. And that happens in science. It happens in everywhere else. Not even if you just make a mistake or something, our scientific understanding of things just change. And the perfect example of that is the sort of contest that was going on in the first half of the 20th century between the steady state theory and the Big Bang Theory. And the steady state theory through all that time was the leading idea uh, and the big Big Bang theory. I mean, the, the whole term "Big Bang" was was invented as a derisory comment. This Big Bang thing. Mm. But suddenly, in 1964, when the microwave background radiation, the cosmic microwave background radiation, the afterglow of the Big Bang, was spotted, which was something that was predicted by the Big Bang theory, but not predicted by the steady state theory. Bingo! Things just changed overnight.
0: That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, and this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. Scientists have detected fresh ice on a crater wall on the dwarf planet Ceres. The observations by NASA's Dawn spacecraft show an increase in ice thickness on the northern wall of the 20-kilometre-wide Tulling Crater. The discovery, reported in the journal Science Advances, provides new insights into how materials in Ceres' crust are evolving on short timescales. The study's lead author, Andrea Raponi, from Rome's Institute of Astrophysics and Planetary Science, says it's the first direct detection of change on the surface of Ceres. The new observations, conducted between April and October 2016, follows the early discovery of water ice at a dozen other sites on the 945-kilometre-wide world. It's thought the combination of Ceres moving closer to the Sun in its orbit, along with seasonal change, triggered the release of water vapour from the subsurface, which then condenses onto the cold crater wall. This causes an increase in the amount of exposed ice. The warming may also cause landslides on the crater walls, and that could expose fresh ice patches. The authors say the discovery means the surface of the largest object in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter is dynamic and continues to evolve and change. The new observations were made using Dawn's visible and infrared mapping spectrometer. By combining chemical, geological and geophysical observations, the Dawn mission is producing a comprehensive view of Ceres. Previous data had shown Ceres has a crust about 40 kilometres thick and rich in water, salts and possibly also organics. Meanwhile, a second study, also reported in Science Advances, has revealed new information about the variability of Ceres crust, suggesting more recent surface changes in the form of newly exposed material. Dawn had previously discovered carbonates, common on the dwarf planet's surface, that had formed within an ocean. Sodium carbonates, for example, dominate the brighter regions of Okitar Crater, and material of similar composition has also been found in Oxo Crater and on the strange pyramid-shaped mountain Anuamons. This study was led by Giacomo Corrozzo, also from the Institute of Astrophysics and Planetary Science. It found 12 sites rich in sodium carbonates and examined several areas, each a few square kilometres in size, that shows where water is present as part of the carbonate structure. The study marks the first time hydrated carbonates have been found on the surface of Ceres, or for that matter, any planetary body besides the Earth, giving scientists new information about the dwarf planet's chemical evolution. You see, water ice isn't stable on the surface of Ceres over long timescales. That's unless it's hidden in shadows, as is the case in Juling Crater. And similarly, hydrated carbonates would dehydrate, although it would be over longer timescales of a few million years. So this discovery implies that sites rich in hydrated carbonates must have been exposed due to recent activity on the surface. The great diversity of material ice and carbonates exposed by impacts, landslides and cryovolcanism all suggest that Ceres' crust isn't uniform in composition. These heterogeneities were therefore either produced during the freezing of Ceres' original ocean, which now forms the dwarf planet's crust, or later as a consequence of large impacts or cryovolcanic intrusions. Changes in the abundance of water ice on a short timescale, as well as the presence of hydrated sodium carbonates, are further evidence that the dwarf planet Ceres is a geologically and chemically active body today. The Dawn spacecraft is the only mission ever to orbit two extraterrestrial worlds. It first orbited the giant asteroid Vesta for 14 months between 2011 and 2012, before continuing onto Ceres where it achieved orbit insertion in March 2015. The worlds of Ceres and Vesta are separated by the snow line. The distance from the sun, where it's cold enough for volatile compounds such as water, ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide to condense into solid ice grains. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. As SpaceX boss Elon Musk's Little Red Roadster continues its journey towards the orbit of Mars, a new website following the adventures of the sports car and its steg like mannequin occupant Starman has done some calculations. The website, called whereistheroadster.com, claims Starman's Roadster will make its first flyby of Mars on June the 10th before continuing into the main asteroid belt. Now, despite what you may have seen in the movies, objects in the asteroid belt are on average separated by distances greater than the distance between the Earth and the Moon. It's not like the Millennium Falcon manoeuvring between a closely packed asteroid field. So chances are Starman and his roadster will survive their asteroid belt encounter, reaching their first aphelion, almost distant orbital position from the Sun sometime around October the 10th. They'll then swing back out of the asteroid belt, looping around the Sun at perihelion, its closest orbital position to the Sun, on August the 9th, 2019. Starman and the Roadster are up there because they were the test payload for the maiden flight of the new SpaceX Falcon Heavy, a 70-metre-tall launch vehicle combining three Falcon 9 core stages mounted side-by-side, providing enough power to loft massive 60-plus-ton payloads into orbit. Using his own car was a brilliant publicity move by Musk, who also just happens to own Tesla, the company which built the Roadster. Musk originally wanted to land the car on the surface of Mars, but international planetary protection rules prevented this, due to the potential contamination risk posed for any life on Mars. As for Starman, that white, Stig-like suit he was wearing isn't a racing suit, but SpaceX's next-generation astronaut spacesuit. To help set the mood for Starman's journey to Mars, the car's speakers were blaring with David Bowie's space oddity set on repeat. Although when you think about it, being in the vacuum of space meant the speakers were useless. Although originally only expecting to reach the orbit of Mars, the power of the Falcon Heavy was enough to send the Roadster and Starman far beyond the Red Planet before beginning its orbital loop. Technically, Starman and his Roadster should keep doing this for the next few billion years passing close to the Earth about every 30 years or so. However, a new study published on the pre-press physics website Archive.org by Assistant Professor Hanno Rain from the University of Toronto claims simulations suggest a dynamical half-life for the Roadster of about 15 million years. Rain and colleagues say repeated gravitational scatterings mean the Roadster actually has a 22% chance of colliding with the Earth sometime in the next 15 million years. There's also a 12% chance of it hitting Venus, and another 12% chance of hitting the sun in that time. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. OK, Fred, let's hit the road
2: and look at Elon Musk's Tesla, which is theoretically on its way to Mars, although uh, uh, it's it's making the news again. Is,
1: is something not right? Is something, <laughs> is something amiss with... Um, the musk tesla well apparently the musk tesla has out-teslaed itself it's uh, actually going further than it should have done Oops. so just just to recap uh, this was of course the payload for the first test of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket which was launched on the 8th of February this year and Elon Musk's tesla provided the the dummy payload normally people use planks <laughs> Steel or bits of concrete, things that they don't really care too much about. But the 2008 model Tesla that Elon Musk has been driving, presumably for the last 10 years, found its way into the payload bay and was sent in an orbit that would intersect with the orbit of Mars. That's what was the idea. It wasn't going to Mars as such. What Elon did was put it in, into an orbit, a, a very elongated orbit, that would carry it from. Uh, an Earth. elongated. Of course, elongated. Orbit. Yes, that's right. It would right. have to be isn't it? what we call an elliptical Elon gated or orbit <laughs> So that orbit um, starts off with the orbit of the Earth, but then carries the spacecraft right out to the orbit of Mars. This was the idea. Before returning back again, and then kissing the orbit of the Earth again, and then heading out to Mars in a sort of infinite cycle of the ellipses. But it seems that rather too much energy was given to the final stage. And the object, uh, which by the way, now has a a, a formal name. It's called Target Body 143205. Oh, really? Just to to dot the i's and Across the teeth, but it's going out to 257 million kilometres rather than the orbit of Mars. It's more or less halfway to Jupiter. The reason why this is in the news again though, Andrew, and it's not a very big story, but it's rather a nice. Oh, it's just fascinating. A group of scientists have analysed what will happen to the Tesla orbit as it, you know, evolves over time, because it's feeling pulls from the gravity of all the planets and undergoes what we in the trade call perturbations. Perturbations are those gravitational tugs that you get from Other world. So they've these guys have looked in detail at the orbit of Elon's Tesla, and the next time it will get close to Earth uh, (laughs) is is actually in 2091. Good grief. Uh, That is when it will next be in the vicinity of Earth. These are pretty early orbits because this is all going to go on for billions of years. Eventually, I think there is a suggestion that it will collide with the sun. But in 2091, it will come back to be very close to Earth. There is a vanishingly small possibility that it will actually hit the Earth, but, you know, burn up in the atmosphere probably. Uh, The writer Andrew uh, Masterson has written a lovely article on this, and he uh, sort of uh, paints this picture of um, somebody working in a field somewhere and suddenly an 80-odd-year-old Tesla falls out of the sky with a mannequin dressed in a space suit. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can imagine the conversation that would go on following that. Uh, It almost certainly won't hit the Earth. But 2091 is the next uh, nearest uh, apparition.
0: That's Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister programme Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. (music) Time now to take another brief look at some of the stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. A new study suggests that eating more yogurt could be associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease among people suffering hypertension. High blood pressure affects about a billion people worldwide and it may also be a major cause of cardiovascular health problems. Higher dairy consumption has already been associated with beneficial effects on cardiovascular disease-related problems such as hypertension, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. This new study, reported in the American Journal of Hypertension, included over 55,000 women aged 30 to 55 and 18,000 men aged 40 to 75. Both groups are part of long-term health studies. Participants were asked to complete a 61-item questionnaire in 1980 to report usual dietary intake during the preceding year. Participants subsequently reported any interim physician-diagnosed events, including myocardial infarction, stroke, and revascularization. The study found higher intakes of yogurt were associated with a 30% reduction in the risk of myocardial infarction among females and a 19% reduction in males. Higher yogurt intake in women was also associated with a 16% lower risk of undergoing revascularization. In both groups, participants consuming more than two serves of yogurt a week had an approximately 20% lower risk of major coronary heart disease or stroke during the follow-up period. When revascularization was added to the total cardiovascular disease outcome variable, the risk estimates were reduced for both men and women but still remained significant. Well, if you've had one of those so-called senior moments, you know, where you forget where you've left your phone or your car keys, well, think again. A new study reported in the journal Neuron suggests that while memories involving familiarity with objects drop off as you age, spatial memory is far more resilient. Researchers compared how well a group of young adults aged 18 to 31 and an older group of adults aged 64 to 89 did in-memory tasks while in an fMRI scanner. While the older adults struggled to identify when an object had significantly changed from one that had been shown before, the fMRI showed that the neural path responsible was in an area known to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. But the part of the brain associated with spatial memory was in a completely different area and unaffected by ageing, which the researchers say means brain ageing is selective. A new study has compared the genetic code of sheep and goats with their wild ancestors, the Asiatic mouflon and the bazaar ibex, in order to determine how domestication over the last 10,500 years has affected their DNA. The findings reported in the journal Nature Communications shows that although the two animals were selectively bred by farmers to achieve similar characteristics, such as high immunity and productivity, the genetic pathways that have led to these traits have differed widely between the animals. Scientists identified 90 areas of DNA that have changed as the animals were domesticated, 20 of which are shared between the wild ancestor species. But the thing is, the ones that changed, changed differently in sheep and goats, in response to selective breeding. A new study of the so-called dark web shows that most sites are about money. The dark web is a huge slice of the internet, where hidden illegal websites can be accessed anonymously using special software such as Tor. It has a reputation for being focused on crimes, including financial fraud and money laundering, as well as mercenary soldiers, gun running, hacking, drug trafficking, terrorist activities, slavery, and child pornography. This new study, reported in the journal Digital Investigations, found that most of the sites were actually focused on financial crimes, such as Bitcoin laundering. The study also claims that almost a third of the 200,000 dark web pages they found weren't even illegal or unethical, but simply personal sites. They also point out that their search only uncovered one terrorist site. It doesn't mean there aren't more there, it just means that they're better hidden. And now, a skeptic's guide to denialists. There are real conspiracies in the world and real people trying to hide the truth. But telling the difference between the truth and some fruitcake conspiracy theory comes down to finding verifiable scientific evidence supported by facts. And that takes real hard work and detailed investigation using highly respected independent sources to do it properly. It's not just a case of avoiding data supplied by the tobacco industry to determine the cancer risk of cigarettes. You see, unless you're a professional investigator with years of experience, chances are you'll make mistakes and you could miss important facts in your journey to the truth. Mind you, that's never stopped those pushing a personal agenda from grabbing data from websites often run by people who already agree with their viewpoint be it claims of fake Apollo moon landings, rejection of climate change, Holocaust denials, or who really shot JFK, Martin Luther King or Robert Kennedy. The world is full of denialists who have invented their own conspiracy theories to support a personal narrative, political or religious view, or racist belief. Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics, is a regular contributor to Space Time. And he joins us now to provide a skeptic's guide to denialists.
2: So a denialist is a person who does not accept reality, or more specifically, the truth of something that is supported by the weight of evidence. Denialism exists in in almost all areas of life, but in particular, it's common in areas where accepting reality has a political, ideological, or religious aspect to it. Common areas where denialism is common today include Holocaust denial, vaccine denial, and climate change denial. And of course, climate change denial is something that we've discussed several times in the past, while the motives behind the denial of each specific truth vary, there are several very important commonalities between all of them. First of all, denialists tend to have a strong ideological view that precedes their engagement with a topic that contradicts or challenges that view. For example, free market libertarians will tend to reject climate science, and anti-Semites will tend to reject the evidence for the Holocaust. They come to this topic, they come to the contrarian view from a position of already having an ideological. View. And it's very rare for a denialist to be convinced by additional evidence. This second aspect is, makes denialists very similar to conspiracy theorists. And indeed, Professor Stefan Landowski, formerly of Perth and now in Bristol in the UK, has shown that conspiratorial thinking is one of the hallmarks of denialism. This is essentially a practical response. Uh, They say, if 99% of historians accept that the Holocaust happened, and I know that the Holocaust didn't happen, then clearly they're all conspiring to hide the truth. So it's a coping mechanism. You could make minor adjustments to this sentence, this example that I just gave, such as replacing historians with scientists and Holocaust with climate change, and it would be just as representative. So they all have essentially the same kind of response. The techniques used by denialists and by conspiracy theorists are essentially the same. The most common ones are cherry-picking, which is selecting studies and even specific parts of studies that support their view while ignoring the vast majority of evidence that points to the contrary conclusion. False claims of expertise, which is quoting people who are not experts in the field but claiming that they are, or even claiming that they have personally credentials that do not really exist. For example, Lord Monckton claims to have been a scientific advisor to Margaret Thatcher despite there being no evidence at all of him ever giving her such advice, and despite Margaret Thatcher being vastly more qualified than Moncton in science. Well, oh, she's a chemist, isn't she? Yes, she had a bachelor's degree in science in, in chemistry, and he has a bachelor of art, as far as I know. Definitely no qualifications in science. Uh, moving the goalposts is another technique and that generally falls into the same category as just asking questions. Denialists have an incoherent theory of their own position. Unlike a scientific theory, which needs to be explanatory in nature, denial simply needs to sow doubt. So So making contradictory claims isn't a problem as long as the claims also cast doubt on the theory being denied. For example, Holocaust deniers will claim that the death camps didn't exist and that there were war camps. Obviously, these uh, claims are contradictory and they they can't both be true, but that's not the point. The point is they both cast doubt on the existence of the Holocaust, and therefore they are fine from the perspective of uh, the Holocaust deniers. Similarly, Lee Harvey Oswald deniers, and there is such a thing, obviously those people who are doubtful that JFK was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald, they will claim that the Cubans killed JFK or that the CIA did or the trade unions did, but they don't need a coherent theory as long as Lee Harvey Oswald didn't kill JFK. There is also an example from climate change, is that climate change deniers will both argue that measuring surface temperatures appropriately is not possible, and at the same time claim that temperatures are not really rising. So of course, they can't both be true, but both claims are being made. I would like to point to some interesting reading on the topic of denial and of conspiracy theories and the link between them. One is a book by a journalist, David Aronovich. The book that I'm pointing to is called Voodoo Histories. and in that book, he analyzes the emergence of conspiracy theories regarding historical events, such as the JFK assassination. It is sobering to see how often this exactly matches the emergence of truth denialism in other areas. So he discusses conspiracy theories, but it's essentially exactly the same. Professor Naomi Oreskes is a professor of history and in, uh, in history of science in particular, and she has written extensively on denial. And I would particularly recommend her book, Merchants of Doubt, in which she shows how the same technique used in denying the harm of cigarettes are used in denying climate change by the same people. Absolutely. Very often it's the same people and the same
0: institutions that are involved. That's around Segev, President of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Garry, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from Stuartgary.com or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime's also broadcast coast-to-coast coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgarry.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through @stuartgary, at Stuart gary at spacetimewithstuartgarry on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe.
1: You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.